Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. This episode I chat with Richard Vague about his new book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. Richard Vague is a prominent American businessman and investor. He's a former Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He sits on the University of Pennsylvania Board of Trustees, as well as on the boards of other prestigious organisations, such as the Institute for New Economic Thinking. As you'll discover, Richard has some powerful insights into the good and bad aspects of debt. He talks about how it helps grow household wealth, while also promoting economic instability and rising inequality. Richard offers some thought-provoking ideas for helping households and businesses deleverage and get their debts under control. Richard's book is definitely worth a read, so I'd encourage you to grab a copy of it after you listen to this episode. I'll include a link to the Amazon page for the book in the show notes. Okay, let's get into the episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Richard Vague on the paradox of debt. Richard Vague, thanks for joining me on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent, Richard. I'm keen to speak with you about your new book, The Paradox of Debt. Debt's a a huge issue around the world. I've had recent shows on the debt ceiling in the US and and also the uh, what they're calling the emerging economy debt crisis. There's been a lot of discussion about that. And uh, it's one of these things that seems to come back every now and then. We have these, uh, these debt crises in various places. And in your book, you've got, I think, a, a good description of historically what's been happening in this, uh, this process that we'll talk about. Could I ask to start off with, what made you want to write this book? What motivated you to write The Paradox of Debt? Well, thank you so much for asking, and thanks again for having me on your show. We had done a lot of work for a number of years about financial crises, be it the Great Depression or the Great Financial Crisis of 2008 and so forth. And really, all of those were tied up in private debt and really rapid escalations of private debt. We wrote a book called A Brief History of Doom that chronicled the 43 largest financial crises in the world over the last 200 years. And as we went around and presented that, uh, folks would love what we had to say, but ask, you know, what about the other side of the balance sheet? You know, what about uh, the assets that these individuals have? And And can you put this together with the government debt story that we normally spend more time on? And so after hearing that for a few years, I finally said, well, that those questions are legitimate. They're productive. So let's roll up our sleeves and let's get into it. Let's look at the entire balance sheet of countries, of the sectors within those countries. And that's this book. Okay. So you wrote a previous book and you've been speaking with various different people about that. And this gave you the idea. You've had a distinguished career in business and public service. Are you taking lessons from that? Are there things you that you saw in your career that have helped inform this book that you've written? Absolutely. You know, we, we were in the banking business. So I studied debt from the context of being a president of a bank for years and years and years. It's all I did, but I didn't think, you know, when you're CEO of a company, you really are thinking about the results of that company and you don't step back and think about, you know, the equation as a whole. And so that's that really changed in 2005, 6, 7, when we began to see this tsunami of mortgage debt in the United States that ultimately ended up being the great global financial crisis. So I, we, I honed my ability to look at debt and my interest in debt over an ent- entire 30-year career 
but it took the GFC for me want to step back and look at it holistically. Got you. Right. Okay. And you mentioned the balance sheet. So you wanted to look at uh, all of the, you wanted to look at the debt, you wanted to look at the, well, the liabilities for the uh, the people who who owe the money, but you also wanted to look at the the assets. So is that part of the problem? Is the problem that a lot of the money that was borrowed was spent on unproductive investments? Is that is that one of the issues that you've been looking at? Well, yeah, and I want to be careful with the word unproductive uh, there, but. Yes, when you see a great financial crisis as we've had in this country many, many times, we had one in the Great Depression, we had one in the late 1980s, we of course had one in 2008, you see lenders lending too much. And really what we see is they're doing loans that in normal circumstances would be just fine. You know, mortgage loans, commercial real estate loans, but they overdo it. They do too many mortgage loans. They do too much construction debt and not just a little bit too much, an egregious amount too much. So let's take uh, the 08 crisis. Mortgage loans in 2002 were $5 trillion in the U.S. By 2007, they're $10 trillion. Mm-hmm. So they've doubled in five years. Well, you had to be a blind man to miss that. Or you had to have economic theories that excluded debt as a variable. And that's really the way the ma- the orthodox macroeconomics profession looks at uh, the economy. They, their models don't even take debt as a factor. So um, if you were looking at debt, it was easy to spot. It was egregious. Uh, and clearly, it's one of the things we study. Okay, so there are a couple of things there I'd like to discuss, Richard. W- what do you mean by their models don't consider debt as a factor? Is it are you are are you saying that they're too short term that they're not thinking about the longer term? And and debt is you know in in the short term maybe you can get away with a build up of debt, but in the long term uh, there there can be a reckoning. So I, I just want to understand exactly what you're saying there. Well, it's surprising, but what's called the DSGE model, which is the core model used by the Federal Reserve and academic economists everywhere, simply does not have bank and other forms of debt as a variable in the model, period. And, you know, as a a career banker, I find that shocking I'm not sure how you can study an economy without studying debt, but that is, in fact, the case, and it's pervasive in orthodox uh, economics. And that's the very simple, straightforward reason that, you know, in 2005 and six and seven, orthodox economists were absolutely sanguine about the economy at the very moment it was about to fall apart. Yeah, yeah. I understand uh, yeah, what you're saying, and 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 that's true. Uh, so yeah, you're talking about these DSGE models, these dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models of the economy, and yeah, you look at the the macro models that the central banks run, and yeah, I mean they've got a lot on inflation expectations. On they've got their their Phillips curve and their Taylor rule, so they've got all of these traditional macroeconomic uh, equations in them. But yeah, I'll have to look at what our RBA, our Reserve Bank of Australia is doing here. But yep, I take your point and understand what, you, what you're saying there now. I might have to have a, another look at that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree about in the lead up to the financial crisis. I mean, what was extraordinary about that? I was in the, when I was in the Treasury at the time, so we were following it from the, the government perspective. Uh, also, what was happening in the private sector, of course, because that was relevant to uh, the state of the economy, government revenue, and what we'd have to borrow. But yeah, I remember just how much it, it did take a lot of people by surprise that suddenly everyone was talking about Hyman Minsky again, and who, someone who was considered a heterodox economist, and suddenly everyone's talking about the Minsky moment. Uh, so yeah, very uh, incredibly revealing time, that one. So yeah, that, that's more of a comment. Yeah, what I, what I would say is, 
you know, I spent my career as a financial analyst, you know, as a, as a, a bank executive, as a bank CEO, as in any of these capacities. You look at companies and industries in the context of a balance sheet and income statement. And all any economy is, is the sum of the individuals and businesses and other institutions, primarily government institutions in it. You just add those all up and you have the aggregate balance sheet of the country. And so, you know, not coming up through a traditional economics route, I just took it as a given that the proper way to study an economy is the way I studied businesses and industries as a financial analyst. And this book, The Paradox of Debt, is that exercise. We just go in and we look at it the way, you know, a financial analyst would look at it. And you'll see for all seven of the largest countries in the world, we have assets, liability, income, and expense. And we draw our conclusions from that. Okay. And from that framework, Richard, what would you say are your key insights and how that that are different from the traditional way of looking at it? Well, one of the key insights is that debt always grows faster than the economy itself. And I spent decades in my banking career not even thinking about that, but to the extent I did, assuming that debt, you know, ebbed and flowed, that it went up, went down, but it, you know, over time it was in a similar range. That's not even remotely true. Debt always grows faster than the economy. And we see that in the seven largest economies in the world that together constitute 60 plus percent of GDP. In the US, you know, circa 1980, debt to GDP, total debt, government debt and private sector debt was 125% of GDP. Today, it's more than double that level. So Mm. there's no equilibrium we are getting more and more leveraged as economic entities. So that's the first thing that kind of hits you in the face like a two-by-four. You know, we're getting more and more leveraged. One of the other things that really is, you know, a central conclusion of this book, and again was something that I hadn't thought about, but is is abundantly ever evident from the data, is the more debt you have, the higher the net worth of households go. So in 1980, at the time, you know, total debt's 125%. Household net worth is about, let's call it 350% of GDP. Here we are, you know, what is it, 40-something years later, debt has doubled. Net worth, the net worth after subtracting debt of households is now almost 600%. So we sh- we actually demonstrate in the book that debt, increased debt, actually causes asset values to go up. And, you know, that's good news insofar as it goes, but we also see show that it, it, it severely increases inequality because the top 10% are the primary asset holders. So they're seeing their net worth go up, you know, abundantly, and folks kind of in the middle class and below are not seeing increases in their network to GDP. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, yeah, a few things there. So you talk about the tendency of debt to grow faster than the economy. And are you talking about both private and public sector debt? or the two added together. Okay. And you call this a debt staircase. Is that correct? Yeah, we're very intentional about that because most people call it the debt cycle. And while that's, you know, somewhat accurate, it implies that debt returns to the previous level. Well, that essentially never happens. Mm. Debt will go up rapidly and then might come down, you know, a little bit. It almost never comes down at all, frankly, and only in a calamity. And then it might plateau for a little while, and then it rapidly ascends again to an entire new level. So we we felt like debt cycle, in a certain sense, was misleading 
So debt staircase really talks about we jump up to a new level, plateau, jump up to an even higher level. That's really been the history of debt in most countries. Yeah. So I think this is, is that Ray Dalio's idea of a debt cycle? I, I'm trying to remember who, who, yeah, I guess plenty of people, uh, commentators talk about a debt cycle and leveraging. And, yeah, it's a natural tendency to think of things yeah. going up and down like a mm. sine curve or something yeah. like that. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Now, I want to go back to this, uh, yeah, this tendency to go more and more into debt. And you mentioned that it does increase net worth, uh, a household net worth over time, and that it's increasing inequality. Um, yeah, I guess I, I've probably, you know, maybe I think too much in terms of the cycle. So I guess the story many commentators or economists will tell us there's the boom-bust cycle and there's the exuberance, the over-exuberance, and there's too much lending because there's just too much uh, optimism or uh, frothiness about the state of the economy and potential investments. And we see this uh, time and time again, whether it's railroads or whether it's IT, uh, whether it's housing, there's there's a new boom and that's when all the new debt gets created. So I'm just wondering, but it sounds like it's it's not just a boom and bust phenomenon, is it? You're saying that this is something that actually has a, there's a trend increase in, in debt over time. You're hitting the nail on the head. You know, I think that when people say boom, bust cycle, debt cycle, things like that, the kind of the unspoken implication is things return to the way they were previously. And that's simply not the case. We Instead, we have a boom, we have a bust, but we're at an entirely new and higher level of uh, leverage or indebtedness. Mm-hmm. Okay. I might ask you about this, what you call the paradox of debt. In your epilogue, you've got a really great summary of what this is. So I'll, I'll just read this out because I think this is really, really great. This has revealed the paradox of debt. Debt builds household net worth while also increasing inequality. It is essential for economic growth and yet in excess leads all but inevitably to periodic economic calamity and stagnation. As a result, the paradox of debt portends the certainty of economic challenges and difficulties going forward unless we are willing to get creative and ambitious. So I think that's a, a really great summary of your of your arguments in this book. I want to unpack that. I'd like to ask first, uh, could you just explain again, how does this, it, it builds household net worth. I get that because households are borrowing to invest uh, in housing, but also in some other assets, but it also increases inequality. How does that work, Richard? How does it increase inequality at the same time? Well, this gets back to the relative distribution of stocks in real estate. Right now in the United States, household net worth is about $150 trillion. You know, let's put that in perspective. Aggregate government debt is $31 trillion. So you can see household net worth really dwarfs anything else. It's the biggest factor in any economy. And typically somewhere near 70%, so at least 60%, maybe near 70% of all household net worth is two things. It's real estate, net of the debt to acquire that real estate, and stocks, net of the debt to acquire those stocks. So your wealth really boils down typically to those two things, your ownership of stocks and real estate. Well, the top 10% of households in the United States own 65% of all the stocks and real estate in the country. The bottom 60%, that's six zero percent that's surely most, if not all, of the middle class, collectively only own 14%, of all the stocks and real estate. So if stocks and real estate values go up, well, then inequality by definition increases. 
And I think that is the fundamental equation in every developed economy. Debt goes up, pushing asset values up. And since assets are held unequally, inequality widens. Mm. And is it access to credit too? I mean, obviously, the I guess the wealthier you are or the higher income, the more access you have to credit and that allows you to, to grow your wealth that way. Well, certainly that's part of it. But even if we took the extreme example where somebody in the top 10%, you know, had an asset, had real estate, had a company selling goods, it, it is often the debt that the bottom 60% are uh, accruing or acquiring to buy the goods from the top 10% that contribute to this rising inequality. You know, famously, Apple didn't really have much debt as a company and still doesn't. But I guarantee you that the financing that's provided to its customers are what allow them to buy all the laptops and Macs and iPhones and uh, and other goods. I actually was a banker that provided some of that at mm. one point in my career. So it's the debt of the 60% that are buying the goods uh, owned uh, from companies owned by the top 10% that is part of this equation as well. Right. And that's, uh, and it sounds like that's uh, some, a lot of that is consumer debt. And so it's not good debt, so to speak. So, yeah. Okay. What I want to understand, Richard, I'd love to know your views on to what extent is this a, a good bet for the different players in the economy? So it sounds like, so households seem to be on, well, so far they've, well, at least the the top 10% and maybe a, a larger share, they've done well out of this, uh, out of, uh, you know, borrowing to to invest. It's It's been beneficial to them. I mean, the, we've, you've had a housing crash and you had one in uh, 08, of course. Uh, so it's not always, uh, it's not always smooth, but in general, have households benefited from it? What about business? I mean, clearly some businesses have been able to access finance to grow, but then you do mention that, you know, this can lead to periods of economic stagnation. You talk about this debt, there's a tax bias or there's, it, debt is favoured in the tax system in the States relative to equity finance. And so how do you think about all of this in terms of, is is it rational to, to hold debt or is it, I mean, how, how do you think about this? What about for business and what about for government trying to regulate all of this or the central bank looking at it? I mean, uh, to what extent should we be concerned about this growth of debt? There's a lot there, sorry, but uh, that I'm trying to understand the rationality, what your views are on that, please. Well, I, I would... What we do in the book is we divide debt into uh, private sector debt into two categories, type one debt and type two debt. And type one debt is debt for uh, spending on new things, you know, and type two debt is spending to acquire an asset. Now, being a little simplest, overly simplistic here, but you know, from my perspective, if you uh, borrow to go on a vacation, that debt's a little bit more problematic than if you buy, you borrow to buy a house or a company or something like that. You know, you might, you know, buy a small, you know, gift shop or a retail store. You might uh, borrow to uh, buy a house or buy a rental property. Those have a better chance of increasing your wealth than the debt you incur to buy that motorcycle you've always wanted or go on that trip to Tahiti or what have you. And that, that's a little bit too simplistic, but directionally, I think that would reveal the direction of our thinking about, you know, what debt we would encourage uh, individuals to enter into and not. Okay. So that, that's for individuals. You mentioned this tax. Uh, this this the tax system and how that works and how it favors uh debt finance is this part of the story is this does this mean that companies end up borrowing too much money and then uh to an extent uh they can then invest in unproductive assets is this part of the story this uh this tax treatment of of debt of because of the interest payments are tax deductible and therefore 
are there reforms? Is there any reform to that system that you see, to the tax system that you you would propose? Well, you know, this is, I think, is something that's been debated endlessly for a long time. But, you know, the the what we want to do, I think, and I think this would be true of all of us. I don't think you'd find a lot of disagreement around this. What we want to do is we want to encourage stock ownership and what we would like to somewhat avoid is the accumulation of too much debt. The irony is that the tax code would drive us in the opposite direction because, you know, much of the interest we incur on debt is tax deductible. That's a little less true than it was a generation ago, but it's still, you know, broadly true. And at the same time, companies are double taxed you know, on the stock side of things. So, you know, they're taxed on earnings and then the holder of the equity is taxed on dividends, what's famously referred to as double taxation. So, you know, I don't think changing that changes the world irrevocably or radically, but I think at the margin, if we switch that around, you know, and made, you know, took away the tax penalty on the equity side and took away the remainder of the advantage on the borrowing side, at the margin, it would make a difference over time. Okay, yep. So, so some difference, but it wouldn't be the it. It wouldn't completely uh, solve this. It's, uh, not, this. it's not the magic bullet. Not the magic bullet. Okay, okay, fair enough. Right. Well, I want to ask now about back to your uh, your summary of the paradox of debt. So, paradox of debt portends the certainty of economic challenges and difficulties going forward unless we are willing to get creative and ambitious. First, how bad could those economic challenges get? So, I mean, we're talking about risks here. You talk about how this debt's leading inevitably to periodic economic calamity and stagnation. Are you seeing another financial crisis down the track for the US and the global economy? Well, we measure that by how rapidly the escalation of private debt to GDP is in a short period of time. And we do not see that as a problem in the U.S. at the moment. It's certainly a problem in China. You know, the Evergrande debacle that we all read about this past year was a direct result of an escalation in the equivalent of private, you know, there's no private sector in China to speak of, but, you know, non-government debt or the equivalent of private debt has shot up since 2008 in China in an unprecedented way. And I think one of the things you have there as a result is something on the order of 100 million empty dwellings. Buildings were built in the interest of economic growth that they're, that are over capacity and thus there are no buyers for. So, you know, I think most Western economies, developed economies right now are not in danger of an imminent financial crisis. I think uh, China's got, uh, got its hands full. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, good point about China. I had uh, a guest from the business school in Arizona, I think it was, on last year to talk about the enterprise China model where uh, just the close links between uh, the you know business in China and the uh, the, the administration over there. So, uh, you know, good, good point about that. Uh, what about the uh, regional banking crisis in the US? Is that something you're concerned about, Richard? That's something that's been talked about recently? Yeah, it's it's a minor concern. It's not a major concern. You know, there were some banks that broke the one of the fundamental laws of banking. In banking, you're supposed to match the maturity of assets and liabilities. You know, I entered banking as a young cub in the late 1970s. And, you know, I think one of the very first reports I was asked to prepare was the asset and liability matching report. So if, if you know, 5% of your assets were at a 10-year maturity, then 5% of your liabilities were supposed to be at a 10-year maturity. And if 30% of your assets were at a, you know, a one-month or less maturity, you know, 30% of your liabilities. So 
it matched so that if interest rates went up or down, the spread between the two would be relatively constant. What you didn't want to have is a lot of long-term assets, five-year, 10-year, 20-year bonds, for example, funded by zero maturity liabilities, Mm. checking accounts, basically, or what we call demand deposits in the industry. You didn't want to have that because if interest rates go up sharply, you're screwed. That's not a new concept. That's banking 101. Well, what happened was interest rates were so low and you had certain institutions like Silicon Valley Bank who had way more deposits than they needed or should have had. And it was actually a penalty to them because the yield on those assets was so low. Well, what you do to increase the yield on your excess assets is to buy long bonds. It's the tempt, it's like, you know, the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. You're not supposed to do that. And everybody knows you're not supposed to do that. And yet they did it and they did it in a huge way. They made a huge bet. Has nothing to do with credit quality, has nothing to do with you know the fundamentals of the banking system as a whole. It represents their falling to the to temptation in a in a gigantic way. And they weren't the only ones, but it's not so pervasive that it's a systemic threat to the U.S. banking system. It's you, you can go look at any bank's you know call reports and other financial information, and we know exactly how much of this m- misbehavior occurred and which institutions it occurred in. And it'll it'll hurt it'll hurt a few, and it's hurting a few. It does not represent you know. I, I'm going to put a put a dimension on it. It's a several hundred billion dollar problem in a, in an industry that has well over two trillion in capital. Right. So it's not a systemic threat. Okay. Okay. That's uh, that's fair enough. Uh, I'll go back to your points on the paradox of debt. Yes, the creative and ambitious solutions you talk about. One of the things you talk about is a debt jubilee. Could you please explain what you mean by that, Richard? Yeah, this is. This is a hard problem. If, as the evidence shows, debt always grows faster than GDP, you've almost got an engineering problem. You know, it's as if you were designing an engine and you found out after you had built it that it the temperature of that engine rose perpetually. Well, <laughs> As an engineer, you could predict that that engine's going to explode from time to time. So you would introduce some kind of exhaust system or heat valve escape system to to try to combat or overcome the perpetual increase in the temperature of that engine. I think we've got the same problem, you know, in modern developed economies. They always get more leverage. And so we've got, you know, put put your ideology aside, put, you know, put all you've learned aside. You've got a problem here. And and unless we solve it, we're going to continue to have a couple of things happen. We're going to have periodic crises and we're going to continue to have a slower and slower economic growth as businesses and individuals get, you know, what I would call stultified by high levels of debt. That leaves you with kind of only one solution, and that is ways of taking away debt that do not involve paying down that debt, because paying down debt in aggregate just reduces GDP, right? So uh, we get into this quite a bit in the book, but there's no easy way to do this. So I propose, you know, I kind of go out on a limb and to propose some areas that maybe hopefully will provoke some thinking. So, for example, student debt, which has gone from in the United States a couple of hundred billion dollars to over one and a half trillion dollars, really within a very short period of time. So you got all these students who graduate and then you know lug around too much student debt for the next twenty or thirty or forty years of their life. How about a program where I mean I, I don't support a program of just 
forgiving all that debt because it penalizes the folks that were that did pay their debt. But I do think a program whereby we let them do, you know, a certain uh, amount of voluntary community or civic work, you know, over a you know five or ten year period as a way to get relief on their student debt is something that we could consider. So right now, if you uh, graduate with student debt and you enter government service and you stay there for ten years and you make ten years worth of payments, you get whatever is remaining of your student debt forgiven. Well, let's let's create something that's similar to that for the private sector. If you did 800 hours of community service, let's say, after 10 years, the remainder of your student debt would be gone. I, I, that's what I mean when I say, let's get creative. Let's try to think of ways to do this. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. So Debt Jubilee is about debt forgiveness in in some form or another, and there might be some uh, community service for to uh, so people could reduce their student debt. What about a more broader program of debt forgiveness? Is that what you're proposing in the private sector debt? Banks forgiving uh, part of the debt? Uh, how does it all work? Here's another idea. Because like I said, I, I stopped short of just getting a magic wand out and uh, forgiving everyone's debt, which, by the way, is what in ancient civilizations rulers would do. And I think, you know, guys like Michael Hudson and your countryman, Mike, Steve Keen and others have, have talked about, uh, you know, this is Hammurabi, this is ancient Egypt, uh, this is even ancient China. Um uh, we don't have that luxury. So let's get creative. I, you know, another possible program would be after the 08 crisis, when, you know, it was probably on the order of 15 million mortgages in the United States that were underwater by 10% or more. How about kind of a debt, debt to equity exchange? You know, if the lender would write the mortgage down to the new, current market value, appraised value. So maybe you bought a house that was 300000 and now it's only worth 200000 but you still got a $300,000 mortgage. If the lender will write it down to that new value and write your payments down proportionately, well, then you would, in exchange, give the lender a certain ownership of the house, which would be realized only on the event of a sale of the house. So they would get the upside. And the way the government could facilitate that is by going to the lender and saying, if you do this, we won't make you take that as hit against earnings in the current period. We'll let you amortize that over, pick a number, 30 years. So it's kind of a win-win-win at that point that the bank deals with problem loans. The individual gets a lower payment, um, uh, and the lender has the potential upside down the road if the house is sold. Okay, okay. So you're talking about something that is is voluntary. You're not going to compel banks or or lenders to to uh, forgive part of their loans or force them into restructuring. Your you want this voluntary, but there may be some policy tweaks that could facilitate this restructuring. Is that the argument you, that you're making, Richard? Yeah, to make it real, legislatively realistic or, or feasible, you, you have to construct it so it, there's something in it for everybody. Gotcha, gotcha. And I think one of the interesting points you make is that, look, uh, debt's a contract. Do you, do you quote Dave Graeber on this, uh, if I remember correctly? And uh, look, these things get renegotiated, uh, you know, well, throughout history, we see various periods in which there's restructuring of debt. Uh, I mean, what's extraordinary is that, you know, some countries seem to they, they periodically 
defaulting or and then there's restructuring and then the banks keep you know lend to them 20 years later and then you go through the same thing yeah contracts are contracts you know that uh, you know if you uh, are a data servicing provider and somebody wants you to write a program and have it done by august 1st and you don't have it done by august 1st you have it done by the following february that's not a moral failure and you know but somehow and folks like hudson would argue for good reason uh, people had conflated morality with performance in a commercial contract. So if an individual doesn't repay their debt, that's that's a moral flaw or moral, moral failing. Uh, well, in my career, I was in banking for 37 years, you know, uh, debt contracts with companies get renegotiated all the time. You know, the company, you know, was manufacturing XYZ product and a competitor came along selling for half of what XYZ was being sold for. And we all knew that this debt was never going to repay. And if we absolutely enforced that repayment, we would cause the company to fail and get zero of our money back. Well, instead we restructured the note so that we get paid half of what we were owed back. The country could com- company could survive and compete. So, you know, a rational restructuring of debt goes on in the banking industry all the time, all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I think the light bulb that went on for me was, you know, 10 years or so ago when David Graeber's book, a uh, delightful book, you know, Debt the First 5,000 Years. And he, and he just says, you know, this is not a moral issue. This is a contractual issue. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I want to ask, what about the policy changes? So you were in a official position. You were in a very senior position in Pennsylvania, but I imagine that this would require federal change, uh, regulatory or, or legislative changes. Do you, have you thought about what what could be done at a policy level to help smooth things, to help make it easier, to help make it easier for restructuring to to help uh, households and businesses deal with this uh, higher debt that, that we've seen? Yeah, I think that, uh, the federal regulators, the Fed in particular, have this uh, ability. And there are a couple of famous instances of this. And to me, the most famous and applicable would have been in the early 1980s when the New York Money Center banks had been making lots of loans to less developed countries, the predominance of which were in South America. And, you know, they got to a point where the what were called LDC or less developed country debt was equal to, I think, so, you know, well over 100 percent of the capital of those New York money center banks. So, you know, 150, mm-hmm. 100, the number that comes to mind is 170 percent. It was a big, big number such that when things turn because of interest rates and the rising price of oil, if the regulators had come in and enforced their normal rules, all the New York banks would have failed, which, you know, by the way, would not have been a good thing <laughs> for the country, for New York, for anybody. And so Paul Volcker, one of the giants of uh, economic history, came in. And this was in the days before Twitter. And all those other ways in which information leaks so porously, call those bankers into a room and said, we're not going, you know, you kind of put a fence around this. We're not going to deduct these loans from, you know, our analysis of your capital reserve adequacy. But you guys better get busy. And over the next several years, All your earnings ought to go towards building up reserves against as much of this as you can muster over the next few years. And then whenever you get a big enough cushion, we want you to write it down. That is exactly the kind of thing. And by the way, they did this in a more structured and overt way relative to the savings and loan industry, which at that exact time had a very similar problem. That's a way the regulators can step. In the case of the the LDCs, it was a regulatory matter. 
In the case of the savings loans, it was actually a legislative matter. But those are ways you can do this. And sure enough, I can I think it was 86 or 87 when Citibank announced a billion dollar write-down of its LDC debt. Well, it shocked the world, but it related to a conversation that had actually been held four, four years earlier. And for Citibank to do that was actually an announcement they were now in good shape rather than an announcement that they were in bad shape. They'd been forced to do the same thing in 82. They would fail. They had four years worth of earnings to cushion that. And it was it was actually a positive cleanup sign. Yeah. Yeah. So just um, just to be clear, I mean, the reason I'm just just want to make sure I understand this properly and you're and get your view as a banker. So what's the, how are bankers looking at this when they do agree to a restructure or a write-down? They're figuring that we can extend the term of the loan or maybe we can cut the interest rate or we we take a haircut ourselves, we write down some of the value. They figure that, well, this makes it more likely that they'll actually be able to pay us back the full amount is that they'll survive. Is that the logic from a banker's perspective? Yeah, if, if if you're the banker, the first thing, let's just say it's uh, $100,000 right now. If you're allowed to take that over 30 years, the hit to earnings this year is what? Roughly $3,000 instead of $100,000. You know, the second thing I would do in that case is let them take the full deduction for a tax standpoint, because, you know, mm. most companies have regulatory accounting and tax accounting are two separate things. So Mm. they don't have to take it from a regulatory standpoint. They get to take it from a tax standpoint. So probably from a current earnings standpoint, at that point, they're just fine. But in the meantime, the consumer who was struggling with their, you know, their loan now has a loan they can make payments on adequately. Mm. So they they go from having a credit that is a troubled, questionable credit to a credit that is a solid credit. As it relates to the consumer or the household, they now have breathing room. They can go back to being kind of a regular participant in the economy. They now have a little extra money, not only to make their payment, but to go on a vacation and go out to restaurants and this and that and the other. And they're give up is seven years down the road when they sell their house if they if they get a gain of you know fifty thousand dollars or whatever they might have to give a third or a half of that to the bank whatever they negotiated so it makes it comfortable and possible for everyone that's why i think of it as kind of a win-win-win yeah okay very good richard we're coming to the end of our time Any final thoughts, any additional thoughts on what other policy measures may be desirable or that you're someone who's concerned about the inequality in the U.S. and, you know, clearly that has grown over the last few decades. Are there any other policy measures you'd be recommending to address that? Well, I would make the observation that if the bottom 60% of the U.S population only holds 14% of the stocks in real estate, that you can probably afford to actually give tax incentives. You know, because we talked earlier about just modifying the penalties, but how about a tax credit if you buy stock or a tax credit if you buy real estate for those that bottom 60%? It's such a small number that you have the room to do that without affecting the tax receipts of the government by much, if any. It might actually be a positive there. So I make the point that there's the latitude to create incentives for accumulating asset ownership among that group that we could be taking advantage of that we're probably, that we're not. And there's other things in that final chapter that we touch on too. And they may all be terrible ideas. Hopefully some of them are good ideas. But, uh, you know, ha- having set up the problem in the first 90% of the book, we we take a stab at, you know, maybe some ways to deal with it in the last chapter. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we talked about for- forgiveness or the debt jubilee as a possibility, renegotiations. Then you mentioned some, you're trying to encourage asset ownership. And then there are some others, uh, one, or, are there one or two that you'd, you'd like to highlight. 
I think, uh, you know, it kind of kind of gets off the subject a little bit, but I put it in there anyway. I think there needs to be massive job training because if you want the bottom 60% to accumulate assets, you got to give them a little mm. more income. And we got a situation in the U.S. that I think is paralleled, at least to a certain extent elsewhere, that uh, we've got a lot of jobs that need training that are going unfilled. We got a lot of under underemployed people that don't qualify for that job. That feels to me like a perfect place for government to step in, in conjunction with the private sector and especially the companies, and underwrite that. You know, I think it's kind of the spiritual equivalent of in the U.S. what we call the GI Bill, where after World War II. We underwrote college education for pretty much all the returning soldiers. And I think that helped fuel the increased size of the middle class in the 50s and 60s. I think there's that opportunity here. Okay. Well, Richard, thanks so much. And I'll put a link in the show notes to your book. And yeah, I'd encourage uh, people to to buy it and read it. So it's published by, uh, is it University of Pennsylvania Press? Yes, very good. So a uh, very distinguished uh, publisher and, yeah, well-researched and uh, lots of lots of good facts and figures and, uh, yeah, uh, very uh, interesting analysis. And But very good. But, Richard, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, good luck with the uh, the book sales. And, uh, yes, and I hope you, uh, yeah, you, you get a lot, of, uh, a lot of readers and a lot of people are engaging with you on the issues. And I certainly enjoyed our conversation. So, again, thanks so much. It's a privilege, and all thanks go to you. Very good. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.